Section 10 of A Prince of Swindlers by Guy Boothby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Hagstrom. A Prince of Swindlers by Guy Boothby. Chapter 6, Part 2. On arrival at Greenthorpe Park, Simon Carne was received by his host and hostess in the hall, the rearmost portion of which was furnished as a smoking room. Judging from the number of guests passing, repassing, and lolling about in easy chairs, most of the company invited had already arrived. When he had greeted those with whom he was familiar, and had taken a cup of tea from the hands of the bride-elect, who was dispensing it at a small table near the great oak fireplace, he set himself to be agreeable to those about him for the space of a quarter of an hour, after which he was escorted to his bedroom, a pretty room situated in the main portion of the building at the head of the grand staircase. He found Belton awaiting him there. His luggage had been unpacked, and a glance at his watch told him that it would be necessary for him to prepare for dinner. Well, Belton, he said, as he threw himself into a chair beside the window that looked out over the rose garden, here we are, and the next question is, how are we going to succeed? I have never known you to fail yet, sir, replied the deferential valet and I don't suppose you'll do so on this occasion. You flatter me, Belton, but I will not be so falsely modest as to say that your praise is altogether undeserved. This, however, is a case of more than usual delicacy and danger, and it will be necessary for us to play our cards with considerable care. When I have examined this house, I shall elaborate my plans more fully. We have none too much time, for the attempt must be made tomorrow night. You have brought down with you the things I mentioned on that list, I suppose. "'These are in the chest, sir,' said Belton. "'They make a precious heavy load, and once or twice I was fearful, lest they might arouse suspicion.' "'You need have no fear, my good Belton,' said Carne. "'I have a very plausible excuse to account for their presence here. "'Everyone by this time knows that I am a great student, "'and also that I never travel without at least two cases of books. "'It is looked upon as a harmless fad. "'Here's my key. Open the box standing nearest to you.' "'Belton did as he was commanded.' when it was seen that it was filled to its utmost holding capacity with books. "'No one would think,' said Carne, with a smile at the astonishment depicted on the other's face, "'that there are only two layers of volumes there, would they? "'If you lift out the tray upon which they rest, "'you will discover that the balance of the box is now occupied by the things you placed in it. "'Unknown to you, I had the trays fitted after you packed the others. "'There's nothing like being prepared for all emergencies.' Now, pay attention to what I am about to say to you. I have learned that the wedding presents, including the 50,000 sovereigns presented by Mr. Greenthorpe to his daughter in that absurd casket of which I spoke to you, will be on view tomorrow afternoon in the billiard room, tonight, and tomorrow before the ball commences. They will be placed in the safe. One of Mr. Greenthorpe's most trusted servants will keep watch over them in the room, while a constable will be on duty in the lobby outside. Bars have been placed on all windows, and, as I understand, the village police will patrol the building at intervals during the night. The problem of how we are going to get a hold of them would seem rather a hard nut to crack, would it not? I must confess I don't see how you are going to do it at all, sir, said Belton. Well, we'll see. I have a plan in my head now, but before I can adopt it, I must make a few inquiries. I believe there is a staircase leading from the end of this corridor down to the lobby outside the billiard and smoking rooms. If this is so, 
we shall have to make use of it. It must be your business to discover at what time the custodians of the treasure had their last meal. When you have found that out, let me know. Now you'd better get me ready for dinner as soon as possible. When Karn retired to rest that evening, his inimitable valet was in a position to report that the sentries were already installed and that their supper had been taken to them by Mr. Greenthorpe's orders at ten o'clock precisely by one of the underfootmen who had been instructed to look after them. Very good, said Karn. I think I see my way now. I'll sleep on my scheme and let you know what decision I have come to in the morning. If we pull this little business off successfully, then there will be ten thousand pounds for you to pay into your credit, my friend. Belton bowed and thanked his master without a sign of emotion upon his face, after which Simon Carne went to bed. When he was called next morning, he discovered a perfect summer day. Brilliant sunshine streamed in at the windows, and the songs of the birds came from the trees outside. An excellent augury, he said to himself as he jumped out of bed and donned the heavy dressing gown his valet had held open for him. Miss Greenthorpe, my compliments to you. Lord Marquis is not the only man upon whom you are conferring happiness today. His good humor did not leave him, for when he descended to the breakfast room an hour later, his face was radiant with smiles, and everyone admitted that it would be impossible to find a more charming companion. During the morning, he was occupied in the library, writing letters. At one, he lunched with his fellow guests, none of the family being present, and at half-past went off to dress for the wedding ceremony. This important business completed, a wave was made for the church, and in something less than a quarter of an hour the nuptial knot was tied, and Miss Sophie Greenthorpe, only daughter of Matthew Greenthorpe, erstwhile grocer and provision merchant of Little Baxter Street, Tottenham Court Road, left the building on her husband's arm, Marchioness of Kilbenham and future Duchess of Redby. Simon Carne and his fellow guests followed in her wake down the aisle, and, having entered their carriages, returned to the park. The ball that evening was an acknowledged success, but, though he was an excellent dancer and had his choice of the prettiest woman in the room, Carne was evidently ill at ease. The number of times he stealthily examined his watch said this as plainly as any words. As a matter of fact, the last guest had scarcely arrived before he left the ballroom and passed down the lobby towards the back staircase, stopping en route to glance at the billiard room door. As he expected, it was closed and a stalwart provincial policeman stood on guard before it. He made a jocular reference about the treasure the constable was guarding, and, with a laugh at himself for forgetting the way to his bedroom, retraced the steps to the stairs, up which he passed to his own apartment. Belton was awaiting him there. "'It is ten minutes to ten, Belton,' he said abruptly. "'It must be now or never. Go down to the kitchen and hang about there until the tray upon which the suppers of the guard are placed is prepared.' When the footman starts with it for the billiard room, accompany him, and as he opens the green baize door leading into the house, manage, by hook or crook, to hold him in conversation. Say something, and interrupt yourself by a severe fit of coughing. That will give me my cue. If anything should happen to me as I come downstairs, be sure that the man puts his tray down on the slab at the foot of the stairs and renders me assistance. I will manage the rest. Now be off. Belted bowed respectfully and left the room. As he did so, Carn crossed to the dressing table and unlocked a small case standing upon it. From this, he took a tiny silver stoppered scent bottle containing, perhaps, half an ounce of white powder. This he slipped into his waistcoat pocket and then made for the door. On the top of the back staircase, he paused for a few moments to listen. 
he heard the spring of the green baize door in the passage below creak as it was pushed open. Next moment, he distinguished Belton's voice. It's true as I'm standing here, he was saying. As I went up the stairs with the governor's hot water, there she was, coming along the passage. I stood back to let her pass, and as I did, she... Here the narrative was interrupted by a violent fit of coughing. On hearing this, Carn descended the stairs, and, when he had gone halfway down, saw the footman and his valet coming along the passage below. At the same instant, he must have caught his foot in the stair carpet, for he tripped and fell headlong to the bottom. "'Heavens live!' cried Belton. "'I do believe that's my governor, and he's killed!' At the same time, he ran forward to the injured man's assistance. Carn lay at the foot of the stairs just as he had fallen, his head thrown back, his eyes shut, and his body curled up and motionless. Belton turned to the footman, who still stood holding the tray where he had stopped on seeing the accident, and said, "'Put down those things and go and find Mr. Greenthorpe as quickly as you can.' Tell him Mr. Carn has fallen downstairs, and I'm afraid is seriously injured. The footman immediately disappeared. His back was scarcely turned, however, before Carn was on his feet. Excellent, my dear Belton, he whispered, and as he spoke, he slipped his fingers into his waistcoat pocket. Hand me up that tray, but be quiet, or the policeman round the corner will hear you. Belton did as he was ordered, and Carn therefore sprinkled upon the suppers provided for the two men, some of the white powder from the bottle he had taken from his dressing case. This done, he resumed his place at the foot of the stairs, while Belton, kneeling over him and supporting his head, waited for assistance. Very few minutes elapsed before Mr. Greenthorpe, with his scared face, appeared upon the scene. At his direction, Belton and the footman carried the unconscious gentleman to his bedroom and placed him upon his bed. Restoratives were administered, and in something under ten minutes the injured man once more opened his eyes. "'What is the matter?' he asked feebly. "'What has happened?' "'You have met with a slight accident, my dear sir,' said the old gentleman. "'But you are better now. You fell downstairs.' As if he scarcely comprehended what was said, Carn feebly repeated the last sentence after his host, and then closed his eyes again. When he opened them once more, it was to beg Mr. Greenthorpe to leave him and return to his guest downstairs. After a small amount of pressing, the latter consented to do so, and retired, taking the footman with him. The first use Carn made of their departure was to turn to Belton. "'The powder will take effect in five hours,' he said. "'See that you have all the things prepared.' "'They are quite ready,' replied Belton. "'I arranged them this evening.' "'Very good,' said Carn. "'Now I am going to sleep in real earnest.' So saying, he closed his eyes and resigned himself to slumber, as composedly as if nothing out of the common had occurred. The clock on the stables had struck three when he woke again. Belton was still sleeping peacefully, and it was not until he had been repeatedly shaken that he became conscious that it was time to get up. "'Wake up,' said Carn. "'It is three o'clock, and time for us to be about our business. Unlock that box and get out the things.' Belton did as he was ordered, placing the packets as he took them from the case in small gladstone bags. Having done this, he went to one of his master's trunks, and, and took from it two suits of clothes, a pair of wigs, two excellently contrived false beards, and a couple of soft felt hats. These he placed upon the bed. Ten minutes later, he had assisted his master to change into one of the suits, and when this was done, waited for further instructions. Before you dress, take a tumbler from that table and go downstairs. If you should meet anyone, say that you are going to the butler's pantry in search of filtered water, 
as you have used all the drinking water in this room. The ball should be over by this time, and the guests in bed half an hour ago. Ascertain if this is the case, and as you return, glance at the policeman on duty outside the billiard room door. Let me know his condition. Very good, sir, said Belton, and, taking a tumbler from the table in question, he left the room. In less than five minutes he had returned to report that, with the exception of the quarter outside the billiard room, the house was in darkness. And how is the guardian the door? Carn inquired. Fast asleep, said Belton, and snoring like a pig, sir. That is right, said Carn. The man inside should be the same, or that powder has failed me for the first time in my experience. We'll give them half an hour longer, however, and then get to work. You'd better dress yourself. While Belton was making himself up to resemble his master, Carn sat in an easy chair by his dressing table, reading Ruskin's Stones of Venice. It was one of the most important of his many peculiarities that he could withdraw his thoughts from any subject, however much it might hitherto have engrossed him, and fasten them upon another, without once allowing them to wander back to their original channel. As the stable clock chimed the half-hour, he put the book aside and sprang to his feet. "'If you're ready, Belton,' he said, "'switch off the electric light and open that door.' When this had been done, he bade his valet wait in the bedroom while he crept down the stairs on tiptoe. On turning to the billiard-room lobby, he discovered the rural policeman propped up in the corner, fast asleep. His heavy breathing echoed down the corridors, and one moment's inspection showed Carn that from him he had nothing to fear. Unlocking the door with a key which he took from his pocket, he entered the room to find the gardener, like the policeman, fast asleep in an armchair by the window. He crossed to him, and after a careful examination of his breathing, lifted one of his eyelids. Excellent, he said. Nothing could be better. Now, when Belton comes, we shall be ready for business. So saying, he left the room again, and went softly up the stairs to find his valet. The latter was awaiting him, and, before a witness, had there been one, could have counted twenty. They were standing in the billiard room together. It was a large apartment, luxuriously furnished, with a bow window at one end and an alcove, surrounded with seats, at the other. In this alcove, cleverly hidden by the wainscoting, as Mr. Greenthorpe had once been at some pains to point out to Simon Carne, there existed a large iron safe of the latest burglar-proof pattern. The secret was an ingenious one, and would have baffled any ordinary craftsman. Carne, however, as he had already been explained, was far from being a commonplace member of his profession. Turning to Belton, he said, Give me the tools. These being forthcoming, in something less than ten minutes he had picked the lock and was master of the safe's contents. When these, including the fifty thousand sovereigns, had been safely carried upstairs and stowed away in the portmanteau and chess, and the safe had been filled with the spurious jewelry he had bought with them for that purpose, he signed to Belton to bring him a long pair of steps, which stood in a corner of the room, and which had been used for securing the skylight above the billiard table. These he placed in such a position as would enable him to reach the window. With a diamond-pointed instrument, and a hand as true as the eye that guided it, he quickly extracted a square of colored glass, filed through the catch, and was soon standing on the leads outside. A few moments later the latter, which had already rendered him such signal service, had enabled him to descend into the garden on the other side. There he arranged a succession of footsteps in the soft mold, and having done so, returned to the roof, carefully wiped the end of the ladder so that it should not betray him, and climbed down into the room below, pulling it after him. I think we have finished now, he said to Belton, as he took a last look at the recumbent guardians of the room. These gentlemen sleep soundly, so we will not disturb them further. Come, let us retire to bed. In less than half an hour he was in bed and fast asleep. 
Next morning, he was still confined to his room by accident, though he expressed himself as suffering but slight pain. Everyone was quick to sympathize with him, and numerous messages were conveyed to him expressive of sorrow that she, he should have met with his accident at such a time of general rejoicing. At ten o'clock, the first batch of guests took their departure. It was arranged that the Duke and Duchess of Rugby, the Earl and Countess of Raxter, and Simon Carne, who was to be carried downstairs, should travel up to town together by the special train, leaving immediately after lunch. When they bade their host goodbye, the later was nearly overcome. "'I'm sure it has been a real downright pleasure to me to entertain you, Mr. Carne,' he said, as he stood by the carriage door and shook his guest warmly by the hand. "'There's only one thing bad about it, and that is your accident.' "'You must not speak of that,' said Carne, with a little wave of his hand. "'The pleasure I have derived from my visit to you amply compensates for me for such inconvenience.' So saying, he shook hands and drove away to catch his train. Next morning it was announced in all the society papers that— Owing to an unfortunate accident he had sustained while visiting Mr. Matthew Greenthorpe at Greenthorpe Park, on the occasion of his daughter's marriage, Mr. Simon Carne would be unable to fulfill any of the engagements he might have entered into. Any intelligent reader of the aforesaid papers might have been excused had he pictured the gentleman in question confined to his bed, tended by skilled nurses, and watched over by the most fashionable West End physicians obtainable for love or money. They would doubtless, therefore, have been surprised could they have seen him at, at a late hour of, on the following evening, hard at work in the laboratory he had constructed on top of his house, as hale and a hearty a man as any to be found in the great metropolis. Now those apostle spoons, he was saying, as he turned from the crucible at which he was engaged to Belton, who was busy at a side table. The diamonds are safely disposed of, their settings are melted down, and when these spoons have been added to the list, he will be a wise man who can find in my possession any trace of the famous Kilbenham Greenthorpe wedding presents. He was sitting before the fire in his study next morning, with his left foot lying bound up upon a neighboring chair, when Ram Gaffer announced, Kalmer Sahib. So sorry to hear that you were under the weather, Carn," said the newcomer as he shook hands. I only heard of your accident from Baxter last night, or I should have been round before. Beastly hard luck, but you shouldn't have gone to the wedding, you know. And pray, why not? You see for yourself you haven't profited by your visit, have you? That all depends on what you consider profit, replied Carne. I was an actor in, in an interesting society spectacle. I was permitted an opportunity of following my fellow creatures in many new lights. Personally, I think I did very well. Besides that, to be laid up just now is not altogether a thing to be despised, as you seem to imagine. What do you mean? It isn't everybody who can boast such a valid excuse for declining invitations as I now possess, said Carne. When I tell you that I had a dinner, a lecture at the Imperial Institute, two at-homes, and three dances on my list for tonight, you will understand what I mean. Now I am able to decline every one of them without risk of giving offense or fear of hurting the susceptibilities of anyone. If you don't call that luck, I do. And now tell me, what has brought you here, for I suppose you have some reason, other than friendship, for this early call. When you came in, I observed that you were bursting with importance. You are not going to tell me that you have abandoned your yachting trip and are going to get married. You need have no fear on that score. All the same, I have the greatest and most glorious news for you. It isn't every day a man finds providence taking up his case and entering into judgment against his enemies for him. That is my position. Haven't you heard the news? What news? asked Carne innocently. The greatest of all possible news, answered Kelmer. 
and one which concerns you, my dear fellow. You may not believe it, but it was discovered last evening that the Kilbenhan Greenthorpe wedding presents have all been stolen, including the fifty thousand sovereigns presented to the bride in the now famous jeweled casket. What do you think of that? Surely you must be joking, said Karn incredulously. I cannot believe it. Nevertheless, it's a fact, replied Kelmer. But when did it happen, and how did they discover it? asked Karn. When it took place, nobody can tell. But they discovered it when they came to put the presents together after the guests had departed. On the morning after the wedding, old Greenthorpe had visited the safe himself, and glanced casually at its contents, just to see that they were all right, you know. But it was not until the afternoon, when they began to do them up, that they discovered that every single article of value the place contained had been abstracted, and dummies substituted. Their investigation proved that the skylight had been tampered with, and one could see unmistakable footmarks on the flower beds outside. "'Good gracious,' said Carn. "'This is news indeed. What a haul the thieves must have had, to be sure. I can scarcely believe it even now. But I thought they had a gardener in the room, and a policeman at the door, and a patrol outside, and that old Greenthorpe went to sleep with the keys of the room and safe under his pillow. Quite right, said Kelmer. So we did. That's the mysterious part of it. The two chaps swear positively that they were wide awake all night and that nothing was tampered with while they were there. Who the thieves were, and how they became so familiar with the place, are riddles that it would puzzle the Sphinx or your friend Klima next door to unravel. What an unfortunate thing, said Karn. It's to be hoped the police will catch them before they have time to dispose of their booty. You were thinking of your bracelet, I suppose. It may seem egotistical, but I must confess I was. And now I suppose you'll stay for lunch? I'm afraid that's impossible. There are at least five families who have not heard the news, and I feel that it is my bounden duty to enlighten them. You are quite right. It is not often a man has such glorious vengeance to chronicle. It behooves you to make the most of it. The other looked at Karn as if to discover whether or not he was laughing at him. Karn's face, however, was quite expressionless. Goodbye. I suppose you won't be at the Wilbringham's tonight. I'm afraid not. You evidently forget that, as I said just now, I have a very good and sufficient excuse. When the front door had closed behind his guest, Karn lit a third cigar. I'm overstepping my allowance, he said reflectively, as he watched the smoke circle upward. But it isn't every day a man gives a thousand pounds for a wedding present and gets upwards of seventy thousand back. I think I may congratulate myself on having brought off a very successful little speculation. End of section 10.